So I'm going to be sharing today out of John chapter 18. And uh, before I do, I want to share a joke. You guys like jokes? All right, cool. So the keynote speaker was in such a hurry to get to the venue when he arrived that he sat down at the head table. He suddenly realized that he'd forgotten his dentures. Turning to the man next to him, he whispered, I forgot my teeth. The man said, no problem. And with that, he reached into his briefcase and pulled out a pair of dentures. Try these, he said. The speaker tried them. Too loose, he said. The man dug around some more. Here, try these. The speaker tried them and said, too tight. The man didn't, uh, wasn't taken back at all by any of this. He dug around in his briefcase again. Here, try these, with a smile. They fit perfectly. He ate his meal and gave a speech without any troubles. After the event concluded, the speaker was so thankful that he went over to thank the benefactor and return the spare parts. I want to thank you for coming to my rescue today. Where's your office? I've been looking for a dentist. Oh, I'm not a dentist, the man replied. I'm the local funeral director. <laughs> Grody. Okay. All right. Let's pray, and we'll get started. Oh, Father, um, Father, we thank you for sending your son into the world. Thank you, Jesus, that you gave your life for ours. And Lord, I pray today that, Jesus, you would be glorified, that you would be loved, that you would be seen clearly, and that, Lord, we would love you all the more as a result of, as a result of today, God. Pray, God, that you lead me, guide me, speak what you want to speak, Father, and that we would leave here encouraged and strengthened in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, um, in 2005, uh, Google Earth came out. Do you guys remember when Google Earth came out? I do. Um, I was, in 2005, I was seven and a half years old, which, if you're doing the math, some of you just panicked. You're like, why is this guy speaking to me right now? I understand. Um, but, in, uh, so I would, my cousins had it, so I'd go over to their house, and we'd have Google Earth, and you could, it was super cool, because you could zoom in on precise location. And, uh, and in the same way, kind of, uh, you could zoom in and look at your school, look at your house, or anything like that. And, uh, and I was thinking about it, and I think that today what we're going to be looking at in John chapter 18 is like that. Because if you zoom out all the way, that's like the beginning of human history. That's like in the beginning. And then you have Adam and Eve, and then you zoom in a little bit. And then you have Abraham, and you zoom in a little bit. And then you have David, and you can see that everything is leading to this moment. And then you have John the Baptist, and then it zooms in a lot. And then Jesus, and then zooming in, and you have his life. Because all of human history is pointing to this moment where Jesus is going to suffer and give his life for ours. And so it keeps zooming in and zooming into this moment. And so we're going to look at some characteristics of Jesus today through John chapter 18, verses 1 through 14. So uh, we're going to look at verses 1 through 3. And this is his promise kept. So, when Jesus had spoken these words, and that's talking about <clears throat> John chapter 14 through 17, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, and there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers with some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. So what's happening here is Jesus is being betrayed into the hands of men, that this is darkness, 
And this is as dark as it gets. Um, This is in not only physical darkness in the cover of night, but it's spiritual darkness. That all of the darkness that has existed from the beginning of creation is coming upon Jesus in this moment, like a tidal wave. Uh, Jesus said in Luke 22 that, uh, when I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay your hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. So Jesus is saying that this is the moment where darkness reigns. And that's what other translations say. And so it seems that <clears throat> the Father's hand of protection has been lifted off Jesus. And that like moths to a flame, that these demonic forces are coming to Jesus to inflict their will upon him. Because they've been wanting to do that from the beginning, but they haven't been able to because he's been protected and his time hasn't come yet. And Herod tried to do it in the beginning when Jesus was born by, the, actually Satan through Herod, tried to destroy him by killing all the male children in the area. And all these demonic forces, the principalities and the powers, want to do to Jesus what they've always wanted to do, which is to make him suffer and die. Because they hate Jesus. They hate it when he heals people. They hate it when people fall in love with him. They hate it when he casts out demons. They hate him. They want him destroyed. And Jesus came into the world as light of the world. And that light could not be quenched because light by nature is stronger than darkness. And but for the purpose that he came for to be accomplished, his light has to be quenched. And that's what's going to happen here. And so Jesus is with his 11 disciples, and Judas is gone since chapter 13. So before Jesus begins his discourse in, in John 14 through 17, Judas has left, and, with, and he went and, and um, brought some soldiers. And it says that they crossed over this brook, or this stream called Kidron, and the, and the um, Hebrew root word for that is darkness. So you can see that theme being, um, being repeated. And what we need to know is that the stream that he's stepping over is filled with blood. Because this is the week of Passover, where people are bringing a lamb to be sacrificed for their sins, the Jewish people. And again, this is all to be a, a foreshadow of Jesus and what he was to accomplish. I remember, that, well, they said that... It, 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 could have been roughly 200,000 sheep. Like, that blows my mind. Uh, we grew up with goats, and we had over 100 at one point. And I thought that was a lot, but to have 200,000, that amazes me. And so what would happen is they would uh, sacrifice the sheep, and then the blood would flow out of the temple and down the hill into the brook Kidron. And as Jesus is stepping over the brook, there's blood running beneath his feet. And Jesus is the Passover lamb who's giving his life for our sins. So his promise is being kept. And then it says that they step into a garden. And some commentators believe that this garden was given to Jesus and his followers by an affluent supporter of his ministry, someone who loves Jesus and wants to support him. And they step into a garden. And when I think of a garden, I think of a place of refreshment, a place of rest, where you're refreshed by the beauty of the flowers and God's creation. But... Um, and as, just as in the beginning, where Satan used the serpent to bring death to Adam and Eve, even so we now see, see Satan using Judas to bring death to Jesus as he's stepping into a garden. Just as man's fall began in a garden with Adam and Eve, even so the redemption of man begins in a garden. Just as Adam gave into temptation, Jesus endures temptation in a garden. But Jesus is greater than Adam. Um, in 2 Corinthians, or sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it says that 
if the rulers of this age, meaning the demonic forces working through the religious and political um, leaders in this time that are used to betray Jesus, if they had known what the death of Jesus would bring, that they would never would have killed him because Jesus' death was a reversal. I like to think of it as like a uno reverse card on everything that Adam ever did. And you see this in uh, Romans chapter 5. So in your Bible, we won't have it up there, but uh, turn to Romans 5, uh, 15 through 19. And I think this really explains what's happening here in the, in the picture that we're seeing of Jesus stepping into a garden and the redemption that's happening. Romans five fifteen through 19. It says, but the free gift, that's talking about Jesus' death, is not like the trespass, talking about Adam, saying it's not like it. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more? Did God's grace and the gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to many? So if Adam's sin brought death, how much more does Jesus and his sacrifice bring life? That's what he's saying. Nor can the gift of God be compared. Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of the one man's sin. For judgment followed the one sin and brought condemnation. But the free gift followed many transgressions. That's Jesus. And brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through, through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act, that's Jesus' death on the cross, resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one, the many were made sinners, it's also through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. So Jesus came to undo everything Adam did. And that's the picture we're seeing here as he's stepping into a garden. And this is where the redemption of man starts to happen. Just as man had fallen in a garden, Jesus is stepping into a garden to see that man is redeemed. And this is why we love Jesus. Because he came to redeem everything that Adam had messed up to, to um, make us new. Psalm 49, 8 says that the redemption of the soul is costly and no payment is ever enough. The redemption of the soul is costly and no payment is ever enough. And this is why we need Jesus. Um, funny story, uh, when I was in high school, I needed a job. And, uh, and I would go to the YMCA and I'd see the, the lifeguard there. I was like, that's a job I can do. You just sit there and watch people swim and then test the water for chemicals or whatever every once in a while. That's what I thought at least. So I signed up for the, uh, for the class, and I go in there, and there's four of us. And uh, I remember it, it was kind of intense because the instructor told us to, like, greet each other. And so we started greeting each other, and by the time that was over, she's like, in the time that you did that, someone drowned. And I was like, oh, gosh, do I really want to do this? But uh, so I, I went with the class anyway, and I remember getting in the water, and, like, I was so bad. I embarrassed myself so bad. They were doing all these different maneuvers and tricks, like, I don't even know. And, uh, and I quickly realized that I was not as good a swimmer as I thought. And then to end, uh, I think there was some kind of transition. The, uh, the instructor kind of pulled me aside. He's like, hey, you sure you want to do this? I was like, okay, I'll leave. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, so, but my point with that is that I thought that 
if I could swim, then I could be a lifeguard. Just as I drove here today, but that doesn't mean I can be a NASCAR driver. Or I can run, but that doesn't mean I'm an Olympian. So in the same way, people often say, well, I'm good because sometimes I do good work. Or I'm good because I love my family. You know, those things. But once you get into the water and you realize how high God's standard is, it's only in that moment that you start to realize how much you need Jesus. And it's only through the payment of Jesus that we can be forgiven because only Jesus is enough. In our strength, we will never be enough. Not good enough, not prayerful enough, or generous enough. It's only through Jesus who did all these things that we're saved. And it's only through faith in him that we receive that free gift. And furthermore, uh, back to Jesus in the garden. This was a place where they met as a group. It says that they often had met there as a group. And this, I imagine this being a place of connection, of laughs, of discipleship, of teaching, a place of life, of community. But Judas is going to take the place that was used to meet with God and murder God. And the reason he can do this is that even though Judas was in the presence of God, the presence of God was not in Judas. Because darkness by nature seeks to work behind the scenes, right? That's why it's darkness. It's, it's not in the light. It's working behind the scenes. And we see that with Judas. It says that he was stealing money from the money box um, using, used to supply Jesus' ministry. He's what we would call covert. He's working behind the scenes. Now, can you think of a disciple who's overt? Peter, right? And you'll see that here when he tries to chop a dude's ear off here in a minute. But the point here is that there is a difference between being foolish and being evil. Peter was foolish. Judas was evil. Foolish people function by the power of the flesh. Evil people function by the power of the demonic. Uh, Foolish people is what we'd call infants in Christ. Uh, They're sincere in their devotion to Jesus. They're children of God. But they just mess up sometimes, like we all do, right? We love Jesus, but we mess up sometimes. And that's fair. Like a child falling down, it gets back up, and you help it keep going again. But evil people operate by the power of the demonic. Because it says in John 13, 27, that, that Satan had entered Judas, and that that was the power that was driving him to betray Jesus. So he's functioning by the power of the demonic. And evil people will often appear to be a part of the group, but when time comes, they really show who they are. First John 2, 19 says that they went out from us, that's talking about antichrist, evil people, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. So Judas went out from Jesus to show that he was not of God. Because I believe that you cannot lose your salvation, but I believe that you can fake it. And that's what Judas is doing here. And so Judas... Again, back in the garden, he's bringing the religious and the Romans together to form an unholy alliance against Jesus. And these two groups hated each other before this, the religious and the Romans. The religious people hated the Romans because the Romans came and conquered their land and made them pay taxes on it. Like, that's not good. That's, you're not going to like those people. And it says that they, they love the Torah, they love the Old Testament, and they're reading it, and they see what God wants but the Romans are taking the very tax dollars from them to fund the things that they hate. So this is why they hate the the Romans. The Romans don't really care where your allegiance is just as long as you declare Caesar as Lord. 
which is a problem for God's people because uh, they believe Yahweh is Lord. And uh, so there was this constant friction between them. And so Judas brings these people together to form an unholy alliance against Jesus. And for two people who are formerly enemies to work together, you need to have a common enemy. And that common enemy that they have is Jesus. The religious hate Jesus because he says he's Lord of the Sabbath, that he's God. The, the, the Romans hate him because he, he stirs up political anxiety, stress. Uh, Jesus is not being killed because he healed somebody. He's not being killed because he was a good man. He's not being killed for any of those things. He's being killed because he, being a man, is saying that he's God. And that's why they want him dead. And you, can you picture, they're, they're, it's 12 versus 600 at least. 600 people. So imagine, like, the boots and the, and the armor. You hear it coming through the darkness, coming to Jesus. And it's 600 at least versus 12. This is the power in the moment of darkness. And then continuing on, verse 4. His courage in the face of evil. And then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said, whom do you seek? Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, went forward and said, whom do you seek? So this is amazing to me, that Jesus, in the face of the most evil, demonic, nasty, demonic forces, he doesn't flinch. He doesn't back away. But he says, knowing everything that's getting ready, he steps forward. He steps forward into it. As this tidal wave of darkness is coming upon him, and, he, and it's, Jesus is not a victim of random circumstance. And this didn't take him by surprise. Jesus knew that what he came to accomplish in that, that hour, that time had come. From Genesis 3 to the book of Malachi, all the Old Testament prophecies are speaking of a suffering king who is to come. He knows this is the moment. This is the zooming in where this happens. And here we see Jesus giving himself entirely to the will of the Father. He doesn't rebuttal or hide from the will of the Father, but he steps forward right into it. And it doesn't record it here, but in the other Gospels, it says, not my will, but yours be done. And this is the courage of Jesus. And furthermore, I think this demonstrates, if I, if I can say, like the manliness of Jesus. Because Jesus is often depicted as like a fair-skinned guy who's surrounded by children with a lamb in his arms, which is True, because he's gentle, he's the Lamb of God, right? But he's also the Lion. And Jesus, and I've often, I myself have heard comedians and people say horrible, blasphemous things about Jesus just taking a beating and being a weak man. But Jesus is the manliest man that has ever existed. He's not weak, he's strong. His true strength is not enforcing your will upon others, it's having more strength than anybody and being able to restrain it for the sake of love. And that's what Jesus is doing. He says in the other Gospels that if I should call on legions of angels in this moment, they would come to save me. But he doesn't for the sake of love because he knows that they need him to die. When Jesus first came into history, he came as the lamb. It says that he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. He said that he was poor, that he was despised and rejected by people. But it says when he comes again, he's going to come as a lion. He's going to ride in on a white horse with glory and majesty following him, that every knee is going to bow before Jesus. 
Therefore, Jesus is not to be pitied like a loser, but rather to be honored as a hero. He's like the bravest soldier in a platoon who courageously throws himself on a grenade to save others and bleeds out on the, di- in, on the battlefield. Jesus is to be celebrated. Number three, his humility before the Father. John 18, 5 through 6. They answered him, so that he asked them, who are you looking for? He said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So here we see the humility of Jesus. Because they come into the garden, and they're looking for the man, Jesus Christ. They're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. They're looking for the, for the carpenter's son. They're looking for the son of Mary and Joseph. They're looking for the one who, who sweats and cries, who sleeps. The man, Jesus, who has siblings. And so they went into a garden looking for a man, but they end up finding God. Because Jesus, when Jesus responds with, I am he, they draw back and fall to the ground. And this reminds me in Exodus where Moses, where Yahweh appears to to Moses, and he tells him, go deliver my uh, children of Israel, and I'll be with you. And he says, when I go to them, who shall I I tell them sent me? He says, tell them I am sent you. And so they fell back because Jesus uttered the words that were reserved for the Almighty alone. Jesus is God. And so can you imagine this? If you really think about this, man is arresting God. Man is arresting God. That's humility. John chapter 1 says that he was in the world talking about Jesus, and the world was made through him, and the world did not recognize him. That he came to his own, and his own received him not. So the one who made the men standing in front of him, his creation, are now going to arrest the creator. That amazes me. In fact, they want to kill him. And Jesus wants us to know that his life is being laid down willingly, that no one is taking it from him, but he's laying it down. And because when he speaks, the men fall back so you know who's in charge. That he could, in, in this moment, call in legions of angels and deliver himself. But he wants them to know that he's in complete control of this situation. Nothing is happening that he's not allowing. John 10, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. So how many of you know that um, power reveals what's already inside of you? Because if you have power, if you have fame, it's just an amplifier of what's already inside of you. So that's why most lottery winners go broke in a couple years, because they receive all this, but they don't have the character to invest it or to spend it wisely. That's why they lose the money. So power is an amplifier. And so if you think about this, if you were a king and consequences weren't an issue, and everyone had to say or do what you did or else they would be killed, how would you act? What would power do to your heart? And I know what we all say we do, but how would you really act? What would power do to your heart? And the reason I'm asking this is that here we have King Jesus standing in front of them, the eternal God with all power and might and ability in this moment to deliver himself. But what does he do? He serves. He submits. He trusts the Father and gives himself to his will. That's what he's doing. And that's what God desires from us, is that we would so trust him that when accusation comes to us, we wouldn't take it personally, but we would take what he said personally. 
And when you start to take what he says personally, you really don't seem to notice when other people say things. Because it says that Jesus knew who he was, where he had come from, where he was going, and how his father felt about him. And that gave them the ability to live in humility. Because if you don't know those things, when accusation or those things come, it, it often feels personal because you don't know the answer. So you have to account for what they're saying might be true if you don't know the answer. Can anyone relate to that? I grew up a, a, a very sensitive kid, like extremely self-conscious, extremely fearful all the time. And I was really good at sports, but I never wanted to play because I was just so self-conscious and I never felt like I was good enough. I remember one time playing baseball and I can't remember if my parents probably encouraged me, but I'm th like my dad took me to the first practice and I'm so scared that he has to throw the baseball with me off from the practice and slowly work me over to the baseball field to, to practice. And the reason, it, it, and this was always causing me to look for identity. I, I never knew who I was. And, and the real question I was asking is, who am I? And not being sure of that answer, I often had to take into account what people were saying because I don't know the answer. Maybe you do. And so people would give me the answer, and if they gave me the answer I didn't want, I'd be offended because it's like, well, that's not who I want to be. And so here just, Jesus doesn't have that problem, he, and he doesn't want us to have that problem either. When we become born again and receive the gift of salvation through Jesus, the Bible says that we're now in Christ, that the greatest thing about our identity is that we're now in Christ. Colossians 3 says, For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. For you died, your old man died. Now your life, your identity, everything you are is now with Christ in God. And so what that means is that we're no longer our own. That we don't have to answer those questions on our own. So you don't have to find the answer to the question of identity on your own. But now you say, I'm in Christ. That's the greatest reality about my life, that I am now in Christ. And what happens when you're in Jesus is that he transfers all of his identity to you. So now, now you can say, I'm righteous as Jesus is righteous. That sounds borderline blasphemous, doesn't it? I'm as righteous as Jesus is righteous. Is it because you're any more righteous than anybody? No, it's because it's his and he gave it to me. It's not mine. It's his and he gave it to me. I'm as accepted as Jesus is accepted. I'm as loved as Jesus is loved because I'm in Christ. I am in him and he is in me. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it is him that lives in me. And when that happens, his identity is transferred to me. It's a gift. And when you understand this, it gives you the humility that Jesus did. You don't have to prove things because you know who you are in Christ. And Jesus knew these things, and he wants us to know them so that when accusation and trials come, we have a firm foundation in him. So furthermore, this is the attitude and the relationship that God wants us to have in our relationships with one another. Philippians 2, 5 through 8, it says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Like we see here, him being in the image of God, he had every, every right, every opportunity in this moment to call on legions of angels to defend him, but he doesn't. It says, rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. So it says that we're to take the attitude 
that we see in Jesus here in the garden, the humility of, of Christ, and to apply that in our relationships with one another. How many of you agree that uh, relationships with humble people are just easier? It's just easier, right? They're more listening, more accepting, um, more open, and willing to have an honest conversation. But it's often prideful people that don't want to have a relationship. It says that he who separates himself seeks his own desire. Um, when I was in uh, California going to school ministry in the summer, I again needed a job. So I, uh, I uh, applied for Domino's, and I ended up getting it as a delivery driver. And it was the worst work environment I've ever been a part of. Like, no one wanted to be there. Uh, the lady was, the lady who led the, uh, our, the, our manager was super uptight, prideful, didn't want to have a relationship, didn't want to connect, was just there for a job, just there for a paycheck. And so I lasted a whole eight days there before I quit. And then I went to McDonald's, so you can see how qualified I am. Um, I went to McDonald's, and, uh, and I worked, ended up working there for a year until I left to come back here. And so the reason that that worked out is because those were humble people. They were willing to have conversation. They were willing to talk with me, willing to ask how I was doing. And because of that, I loved working there, and I wanted to keep working there. And so I ended up coming back here. And so there's three different kinds of relationships that you can have between proud and humble people. If you have two proud people, that's a battle. They're trying to fight. They're trying to get over one another, domineer, control, that kind of thing. That's a battle, two proud people. If you have a proud person and a humble person, that's abuse. Because the proud person will often run over the humble person and use them for their own advantage. But if you have two humble people, that's a blessing. And that's a relationship that God wants us to have with one another. Humble relationships, being humble people. Pride is demonic. Humility is godly. Pride pulls hell up. Humility invites heaven down. Pride is natural. Humility is supernatural. Pride is how we war with God. Humility is how we worship God. Pride is the cause for most relational problems. Humility is the cure for most relational problems. And what God desires is that we would show the same humility that we see in Jesus here toward one another in our relationships. And the next one, his love for his own. John 18, 7 through 9. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. So he asked them again, who do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth, he answered. I told you that I'm he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those you have given me, I've lost no one. So here Jesus is showing the love that he has for those who belong to him. And again, what's being emphasized is that the king is not being captured, but he's giving himself into the hands of people. I think about Aslan in Narnia, where he leaves his tent in the middle of the night, no one taking him. He leaves his tent in the middle of the night in the darkness and walks to be sacrificed by the witch to give his life for Edmund. How many of you guys thought Edmund was annoying, by the way? Yeah, okay, thank you. I guess that's kind of the point, though. But, but, uh, but no, he's in control of the situation. He's giving his life here. And again, he says, if you seek me, let these men go. And that's the, that's the attitude of a shepherd. And he's showing himself as the good shepherd. And he's taking their place. He says, he says uh, we, we are the ones that deserve death, not him. That we deserve the beating, not him. We deserve the humiliation that he's getting ready to, 
partake in, not him. So he's stepping in our place. He says, if you seek me, let these men go. He's protecting them. And he's showing himself as the good shepherd. Earlier in the book, Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He says, other shepherds see the wolf coming and flee. But Jesus is the good shepherd who stands and gives his life and protection for the sheep. And wolves in our present world can mean many things. It can be the guilt and shame from the past, accusing voices of criticism, or sudden paralyzing feelings of inadequacy as they come snapping and snarling at our heels. But the good shepherd is there to meet them with a word of a command, let my disciple go. And it's not just... And what this brings to me is great comfort because I know that I'm not just another person. I know that I'm a son, that I'm a sheep, that he knows me personally and wants to take care of me, that I'm just not another statistic to him. Um, He takes personally what happens to me. Uh, When Saul was on the road to Damascus, it says that the Lord appeared to him and literally knocked him off his high horse and said, Saul, Saul. He doesn't say, why are you persecuting my people? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? In other words, the, the um, persecution that you're putting on my people, you're persecuting me. So that's how close. He, he takes our pain personally. Why are you persecuting me? It says that, Ephesians 5, after all, no one ever hated their own flesh, but feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. So when Jesus hurts, so when we hurt, Jesus hurts. When we're in pain, Jesus feels pain because we're a part of his body. It says that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but who in every way has been tempted as we are. He lived in the body that we live with. He knows the things that we go through. Therefore, he is the high priest who is able to sympathize with us and knows, and we are a part of his body. And when you hurt the disciple, you hurt Jesus. And when you hurt the sheep, you hurt the shepherd. And we will never have a better shepherd than Jesus. But oftentimes we live like that's not true. A lot of times we think we run to to things better than Jesus. We get hurt. And instead of running to Jesus, the one who can mend our wound, our shepherd, who understands what we're going through, we run to other things. We run to entertainment to distract from the pain. We run, from, we run to work to disregard the pain. But we need to run to Jesus. And the reality is that none of those things died for us. None of those things gave up their life for us. They're false shepherds. We have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. And as the good shepherd, he is the one who will protect us from evil and give us true food and drink and will give us direction when we feel lost. And we see that with the disciples, that the, wolf, the bloodthirsty wolves are coming and they want blood. And Jesus says, if you, want, if you want someone, let these men go. Take me instead. That's the attitude of a shepherd, and that's what Jesus is doing here. And furthermore, it's, it's the role of the shepherd to take, take care of the sheep, not the sheep to take care of the shepherd. I oftentimes think that I, I would be a better shepherd than Jesus, that if I were in control, everything would be better. But I need to trust myself to the true shepherd, that he is the true shepherd, and he knows better than me. He's able to protect me more than I am. He's able to feed me better than I do. He's the good shepherd. He's able to direct me. Because if you have a shepherd that you don't know is good and that is for you, you won't rest. 
Imagine being a sheep and then your shepherd eats lamb every once in a while. Like, he just, like, you're not going to trust him. You're going to sleep with one eye open. And, uh, and so if we, tr- if we think that Jesus is not a good shepherd, if we think that he, he has alternative motives, that he's not in it for our good, then we're not going to rest. We're not going to be refreshed because we're going to think that he's, he has alternative motives. Uh, next, his work on our behalf. Uh, then Simon Peter, having a sword, so this is Peter being overt, <laughs> drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? So again, remember I was talking about Peter being overt. This is it. Because if Peter feels something, it's coming out. He feels angry. Someone, like, if he has something to say, he's going to say it. That's just the way he is. And how many of you know Peter's not aiming for the ear? Right? He's not trying to give him a haircut. He's, uh, he's trying to kill, kill the guy. And it's not, uh, I'm not exactly sure what his plan was because there's 12 of them and there's 600 of them. So I'm not exactly sure how far he was planning on taking this thing. But, uh, and I can imagine the disciples are just like, Peter, what are you doing? Like, you're going to get us in so much trouble if you just keep doing this. But it says that, uh, uh, it doesn't record it in this gospel, but Jesus actually heals Malchus. He picks up his ear and puts it back on like Mr. Potato Head and, uh, and heals Malchus. And because uh, the, situ- the situation could have easily gotten worse because of uh, Peter's brash attitude. And then Jesus responds with, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And so what's he talking about? He's talking about the cup of suffering that he's getting ready to drink for you and I. And he's getting ready to drink the cup of God's wrath for us. In the Old Testament, we see this more clearly. Jeremiah 25, 15. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. In Revelation 14, 10. They too will drink the wine of God's fury for he has been poured out full strength in the cup of his wrath. And Jesus is getting ready to drink the cup of suffering, the cup of God's wrath through his suffering that he's getting ready to go, uh, to go under. And so all that's getting ready to come upon Jesus, the beatings, the slappings, the spittings, the whipping, the crucifixion, was supposed to come upon us. And I, I want us to actually think about that. And that's why we take communion, is to remember. Remember these things and keep them in our heart. Ephesians 2 says that we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That means we were by nature fallen, by nature enemies of God. No one had to teach us how to lie or how to cheat or steal or hate. No one had to teach us how to do any of those things. Those things came by nature, and you can thank Adam and Eve for that. Ephesians 2, 3 through 5. It says that we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, that means the Father, but God, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath for us in our place. And if I don't, accept that, then I'm going to have to drink it myself in hell. <clears throat> and, and some people say, well, I don't know how a loving God can send people to hell 
but I don't know how a holy God can allow anyone into heaven. People often think of it as God is in heaven, and, he, and we all start in heaven, and then he kicks us out into hell. But in reality, we start in hell, and God in his mercy reaches down and pulls us into heaven through Jesus. And so, but people often see the Father as the mean one, and Jesus is the one who steps in and says, Father, don't do it. But you can see clearly that they're working together. Remember what he says, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me to drink? In other words, he wants me to drink it so you don't have to. The Father wants me to drink the cup of the wrath so that you guys won't have to. And the the Father loves the world and sent his Son into the world to save us because he doesn't desire any to perish but all to come to faith in him. And the Son, in obedience to the Father, comes into the world to save us by his death, burial, and resurrection. And they're together working like a rescue mission for humanity. And then uh, Peter, of course, pulls out his sword to fight. And again, I don't know what he's thinking because I don't know what's going to happen, you know. But he pulls out his sword and, uh, and the lesson in that is this, is that when Peter pulls out his sword, is that he's fighting for his own salvation because he didn't understand what Jesus was doing. And likewise, if we don't understand what, the, what Jesus has done for us through the cross, then we'll often fight battles that the Lord never intended us to. So I, there's a story of a, a kid, and, uh, and he's fighting his shadow. And he's fighting his shadow, he's punching, he's kicking, he's rolling, and he cannot get rid of his shadow. He's like, oh, yeah, can't get rid of a shadow. And his father says, what are you doing? He says, I can't get rid of my shadow. So what he says is, okay, turn and look at the sun. So the son turns and looks at the sun, and when he does, he's like, my shadow's gone. I don't see my shadow anymore. And so when we stop looking at ourselves and the issues that we deal with and look to Jesus and look to the cross, there we will find the solutions to our problems. He said, when he died, he said, it is finished. It's the person of Jesus who frees us, not our own strivings. And we should listen to Peter, or sorry, don't listen to Peter. Uh, We should listen to Jesus, uh, like Peter, and put our sword back in its sheath. But notice he he tells him to put it back. He doesn't say, get rid of it forever. And so in other words, there's a fight. This is a fight, but you don't need to be fighting this one. It seems like he's telling Peter, there's coming a time to fight, but the time is not now. And that this is the one where you need to sit back and let me do the work. And that's hard sometimes, isn't it? Because we often want to feel like we're a part of God's working in our lives and that kind of thing. But just have faith in what he has already accomplished for us. And sometimes it's better just to say thank you. Just to say thank you than to fight. It's better to worship than to war. And just thank the Lord that it is finished. That he has done it through the cross and through his death, burial, and resurrection. And the last section here, his plan accomplished. And so the band of soldiers with their captain and officers of the Jews arrest Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient for one man to die for the people. And so these hundreds of men come to arrest Jesus and bind him. And their hands that were given to them by God are being used to arrest God, to bind God. They're arresting the one that gave them life. And it says that they bound him, them. And I want to read you something. This is Chuck Smith, uh, Bible teacher, commentator. He says, How ridiculous that they should bind him. 
But let me tell you, whatever they used, the ropes or whatever to bind Jesus, did not bind Jesus. Jesus was bound by something much more powerful than the ropes. He was bound by his love for you and me. And that's what caused him to submit to this. Not that they tied him and were taking him as a captive. He was not their captive. He was a captive of love. His love for you and his love for me. That's what bound Jesus to go ahead and face the cross. So stronger than any of the cords that they used to bind Jesus was, were the cords of love that he felt for you and I. And long before he was bound by ropes, he was bound by love. And love was the driving and the controlling force that brought Jesus to the cross. And it's the cross where the love of God is demonstrated. Romans 5, 8. But God shows us his love that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So while we hated God, that's my story. I was 15 years old, hated the Lord, hated Christians, and he mercifully saved me. While we hated God, he died for us. While we were addicted, he died for us. While we were lost, he died for us. While we were depressed, he died for us. While we were perverted, he died for us. While we were sick, he died for us. And people often say, well, I don't feel the love of God. And I, and I get that because I, I oftentimes don't feel it either. But the love of God isn't always a feeling, but it is always what you see, which is the cross. Because if you want to know the love of God, you have to look to the cross to know the love of God. When you don't feel the love of God, look to the cross. Jesus said, no greater love has anyone than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. And that's what Jesus did for you and I. And that's where the love of God is understood. It was when we were at our darkest, while we were sinners, while we hated God, all those things that he died for us at our darkest. And so next time you don't feel the love of God, look to the cross. Because when you look to the cross, then you'll understand the love of God and by faith in that. And then lastly, it says that this one man should die for the people. He says one man should die for the people. So this is the zooming in that we're talking about. All of human history has been zooming into this moment. That one man should die for the people. And what Jesus is doing here is he's actually rewriting human history. He's going to take every wrong that we've ever committed, and he's going to cancel out the certificate of death that was written to us because of our sins and through his body on a tree. We'll have life in him. He's rewriting human history. Adam and Eve sinned in the beginning in a garden, and God used an angel to guard the way to the tree of life so that they wouldn't eat it and live apart from him. Now Jesus is in a garden, and Satan is there to tempt him, but he does not give in to the temptation, but he decides to go to that tree, the cross. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I'm going to draw all men to myself, because it's the cross. It's the cross where you see the love of God. It's the cross where you see God's love for humanity and nowhere else. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And that cross is now our tree of life. That cross is now our tree of life. So if we would partake of it, we would live. By simple faith in the person of Jesus who died for us, we can partake of the eternal life that's available on that tree, on the cross, the tree of life. Man's fall began in a garden, and the second Adam, Jesus, sees to it that our redemption starts in a garden. Today we see Jesus as the Passover lamb who's been sacrificed for our sins. We see him as the warrior who stands strong in the face of evil, as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, and the humble servant who drinks the cup of God's wrath for us. And so what's all the application for this? 
is that I personally believe that it's the more that we look to Jesus that we become more like him. That the more that we see him, the more we become like him, the more we worship him, we become like him. So what I want us today is to not be like the child who's fighting against their shadow and their own fight, but to turn and look at the sun so that we can be free in that moment, looking onto Jesus, because looking at him, there is freedom. And I don't want us to be like Peter, who was trying to fight a useless fight against this army and trying to fight for his own salvation, that he couldn't win on his own strength. But I want us to trust in Jesus, who won the fight for us. He died, he was buried, resurrected, and ascended. And Jesus sent the Holy Spirit. Once he ascended, he sent the Holy Spirit so that we could experience the fullness of the reality of being new creations in Christ. New people who live in a different way. Not not under the old nature as sinners, but as those who have been forgiven and made new in Christ. New creations. He's taking us back to the garden where we're brand new. New creations in Christ. And we we can actually live different. What an opportunity. In the midst of all the darkness, in the midst of everything that's happening in our world right now, we have an opportunity to shine. Because light is stronger than darkness. When there's a darkness issue, it's not a darkness issue. It's a light problem. And what an opportunity in the midst of the darkness to stand firm in Jesus, to place our faith in him, to walk in relationship with him by the Holy Spirit, and to become brand new and become transformed that we can shine in the midst of this dark world. And living as sons and daughters rather than orphans, living as friends rather than slaves, joyful in the midst of the depression, loving in the midst of hate, unifying in the midst of division, and healing in the midst of heartbreak. And I believe that it's as we zoom into Jesus and begin to understand what he's done for us that we become more like him as we worship him. Let's just pray. Jesus, I thank you so much for what you've done for us. Thank you that you, King of life, gave up your life for ours, for us. That you, God, that you came to your own and your own did not know you, but you were humble enough to give yourself into the hands of men, to be betrayed by your disciple, to endure whippings and beatings and eventually be crucified, all for us, all for love that you drank the cup of God's wrath for us. I pray, Father, that we all place our faith in you, our trust in you, Jesus, because you are the tree of life. You on that cross is the tree of life. Jesus, I pray that we would all partake of that. Lord, help us to live bright, to live as lights in the midst of a dark world. God, what an opportunity to shine for you, to look different for you. And Jesus, I pray that you would... uh, Enlighten our hearts, Holy Spirit. Teach us to walk with you. Teach us to love you. And we love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you. Dismissed.